Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. This episode, we'll be talking about Explore Everything by uh, Dr. Bradley Garrett, which is published by Verso and was published in 2013. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. Uh, I'm your host, Dave O'Brien. And uh, in keeping with the kind of London uh, basis that we've got for New Books in Critical Theory, I'm here with Dr. Bradley Garrett, who is going to talk to us a bit about his book, Explore Everything, which came out, uh, was it a year ago in Verso Press? Uh, it was actually in October, it wasn't, wasn't too long ago. Although it seems like a bit of a blur, it's like on, on an insane tour for a couple yeah. of months. <laughs> and also, actually, I hope we'll sort of come in, into some of this uh, a bit later. I mean, the book feels like it's been around for a long time because of some of the uh, publicity around your kind of critical project and your your sort of work. But anyway, that will come. So to start off with, uh, could you just sort of introduce yourself in terms of um, your intellectual background, where you're working at the moment, and I guess how you came to write a book called Explore Everything? Yeah, sure. Um, I am currently working at the University of Oxford in the Technological Natures Research Collective. Um, I'm a, a postdoctoral researcher there. My background, strangely, uh, is I, I did my undergraduate degrees in history and anthropology, and then I jumped over to archaeology for my master's. Um, and my, so I guess when I came into my PhD in, in geography, um, my interests really were in heritage issues and material history. Um, and so when I came to London, I, I was I was uh, interested in doing a project on kind of alternative archaeologies. So one of the things that I that I constantly encountered as an archaeologist was a frustration that I was being put in a position of authority over other people's heritage. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I felt well, I felt I needed to disrupt that. <laughs> so, so, um, so when I began the PhD, the idea was that I was going to find people who were doing kind of populist archaeologies, people who were doing archaeology on their own terms. And I ran into these urban explorers in London. Um, so these, these explorers were sneaking into what we might consider heritage spaces, like places like Battersea Power Station, right? Places that have an obvious kind of historic value. Um, but they were doing this on their own terms. And, and essentially, um, there were three groups that I was going to study. But once, once I started going out with the urban explorers, uh, my... Supervisor Tim Cresswell, he said, "This is incredible. Just follow that story wherever it goes." So that was essentially that was the beginning of my project. And the book that I wrote, "Explore Everything," is a a four year ethnographic account of my time with those urban explorers. And um, I guess I guess you know, firstly, an account of the places we explored. So it's very much kind of you know, it, it is almost like an archaeological report. Sense, you know, very kind of um, site-specific, location-based reportage of, of, of hidden places in the city. 
but I guess the, the, the more important thing for me was the ethnographic angle. You know, who are these urban explorers? Why did they get involved with the practice? And politically, what does it mean to sort of go into these off-limit spaces in the city and to do this kind of guerrilla archaeology to record these places without permission? And that's quite a good place to start in the book, actually. But so what is an urban explorer, even before we kind of get into uh, sort of who they are? Because the who they are is a fascinating tale that runs throughout the book. But yeah, so what is an urban explorer? So essentially, the the ethos behind urban exploration is that um, the city that we live in, the city that, that many of us, um, uh, you know, go operate in every day, going to work, going to school, you know, contains spaces which are off limits to us, and that a lot of those spaces. Um, a lot of those spaces, in fact, have been built and maintained with taxpayer money. Um, and so urban explorers feel this kind of, um, they feel desire and a need, but also a, a, a kind of um, a kind of moral impetus to actually go, to go and explore these spaces and to record them and to share them with people. So there's a sense that there's a kind of collective, um, like a collective urban heritage that is being documented by these explorers of hidden spaces. And very often they end up becoming photographers because that's that's one way that you share those experiences. And it would be really good actually to, you know, later maybe we can unpack the photography practice a bit more because yeah. I think that, that that ended up being a really fascinating component uh, of the study. Yeah, I mean, from the sort of materiality of the book, it's very rare to get a book that is dealing with kind of... Uh, critical theoretical questions around cities, uh, spaces, that has got these wonderful full-colour photographs, and it usually, my experience of kind of even, you know, kind of geography, cities books tend to be quite dour, black and white, I mean, I had a, so to an, an architect for one of these podcasts, we've done a really interesting book uh, around cities and spaces and places, uh, and the illustrations were, you know, quite quite interesting, but they're all black and white, and one of the things that kind of shines through from the verse of text is, is how colourful the text is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think that that was a vital part of the story, and, and if we actually think about new work in geography going on around non-representational theory, um, if... if if the book as an artifact couldn't relay the effective capacity of the photography in, in the way that they, they can do online, then I think you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, it, there was actually, you know, there was a, there was a critical, there was a theoretical, if you will, reason for making sure that those photos came through in the way they did the book. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. Um, and, and also, uh, incredibly pleased with Verso, I have to say. They were, they were so amazing to work with. And they really went out of their way, I mean, you know, finding the right ink, finding yeah, the yeah, right yeah. paper, you know, finding the perfect combination to be able to print the book in the way that they did. And, yeah, it's, just, it's, a, it's a gorgeous art artifact. But, you know, going back to the PhD that this that this book came out of, you know, that's how I had constructed it from the beginning. The, yeah. the PhD actually had, I think, 200 color images in it. It cost me a fortune to print. <laughs> but the examiners appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> and it. And it's interesting you mentioned that because that, I suppose, theoretical question around how do you, you know, do academic disciplines that take seriously questions of non-representational theory, uh, you know, kind of critiques structuralism. I mean, my area is around kind of uh, and touch on museums and touch on heritage and there is that kind of problem of how how do you take seriously these theoretical changes 
if you're just going to produce, you know, a classic 200-page text that is expected to be read in a fairly kind of traditional way. Sure. And it's interesting you've got, I guess, the kind of the disciplinary support well, I fought for the disciplinary support. Oh, you both support. <laughs> well, I guess, no, the dis- disciplinary support was there. The institutional support was a bit tricky. Um, but the idea, you know, is, is I don't have anything against text. I mean, I think that's the first thing to say. It's just that, you know, photography and video and text, they open out ideas in different ways. And, and what I really wanted to have was the interplay between those yeah. things. I wanted to have all of those sort of tensions there. And to be able to tell those stories in different ways. And, and to have those materials not operate in isolation to each other. Or, or to have one material subservient to the other. So, you know, the, 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 the photos in my book are not illustrations of the text. Yeah, yeah. They do, they do powerful work in their own right. And you could actually, you could strip back all the text. And this could be a 130 photo photo essay. And it would still tell an incredible story. So that was part of the idea. But... While I was doing the PhD, I actually had to I had to lobby Royal Holloway to be able to mark to get them to mark part of my thesis on um, I guess those more creative or, or experimental components. And there was there was a bit of resistance, but obviously, like you know, places like Goldsmiths um, uh, where they have practice based PhDs yeah, yeah, yeah. and pe- you know people in anthropology, for instance, doing doing visual anthropology projects that really helped um, to to. to able to show them that this has been done before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even though, you know, the interesting thing about geography is that because we have that background with non-representational theory, I was able to engage with those things in a slightly different way than a visual anthropologist or a visual sociologist would. And that, I guess, has, has become my sort of second strand of research interest now, which of course I was never expecting yeah, <laughs> yeah, at yeah, the yeah, beginning yeah. of the project. I know, and it's, I mean, the, what you're saying is so rich and so so many kind of points I can bounce off there, but I'm interested in the kind of the transition that really runs through the book from this kind of, uh, I guess, idea about being an urban explorer to then uh, this concept of place hacking uh, and almost sort of, at least when I was reading the book, I got the sense of your own journey from being a kind of uh, an urban explorer, and then incorporating this broader idea of place hacking. So I don't know if you could say a bit about what place hacking is and, and how that came up from the, uh, the work. Yeah, it was um, it was an interesting process when I when I met the urban explorers. Um, I was interested because of my background in archaeology. I was interested in these issues of, of, of heritage, and so that probably led me to meet explorers who were also interested in those things. So we were going in, initially we were going into um, trespassing into places like Battersea Power Station, Millennium Mills, uh, abandoned hospitals around London. Um, and, and it was an incredible experience to have this, this very kind of visceral connection to the history of these places. You know, to go into an abandoned hospital, for instance, and to dig through patient records and to, you know, look through files and to, you know, sit in padded rooms, uh, you know, these places that had been, you know, very often sort of rapidly vacated, yeah, and there were these kind of lingering, you know, essences in the place, which, you know, non-representational theory was all of it, it, it worked really well as a framework for kind of going into these places and trying to, um, to, to kind of relay the effective qualities of, of actually being in that architecture, but... What happened over time is that, you know, as with any good ethnography, it started to change, and the 
explorers that I was going out with, they soon started sneaking into construction sites. Mm. Um, and I, I remember having this one really interesting conversation where I was saying to one of the explorers, like, what, why are we doing this? Why are we sneaking into a construction site? What does this have to do with, you know, the history of the city and, yeah. and, and, and heritage issues? And he said, he said, look, Brad, you, you have to get over that notion that this is about getting in touch with history. He said, you know, the city is a place that's constantly morphing, it's constantly mutating. And what we're trying to get at is that in-between moment. We're trying to get, we're, we're trying to actually experience those moments which are denied to us when architecture is in a state of transition. So, fine, I was sold. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I go, I go along for these these things, and basically my, my next challenge then. So the, the explorers were calling this infiltration rather than urban exploration, right? So my next challenge was how do I come up with a concept that embodies both of these kinds of explorations, you know? And and eventually, um, as you will find in the book, it sort of you know escalates in pace and in danger. And by the by the end of the book, we're sort of you know running two blinds at two in the morning, you know, dodging trains, going into um, electricity tunnels, uh, sneaking into to, uh, bunkers underneath the city, you know, going into sewers where, you know, the, the possibility for, for, for flooding is always likely. And I guess, you know, I thought, how, how can I possibly relate those things? How can I tie them together? So my idea was that in all of those instances, what we were doing is we were, is we were accessing closed space, right? So in the same way that a hacker might try and access um, a proprietary cyber system, you know, they find a loophole which get, gets them access to a place. It felt it felt to me like urban explorers were doing the same thing when they were trying, whether they were trying to gain access to a sewer system or utility tunnel or an abandoned building, it was always about finding that little security loophole and then exploiting it to gain access. And so that's how I came up with the notion of place hacking. Of course, the second part of that is that hacking isn't just about the hack, it's also about sharing the hack. Yeah. Because once you do that, um, it makes it clear to people that, A, you gained access, so it's sort of, there's some bragging rights, it's yeah. sort of, you know, your, your, your credentials as a hacker, you were able to access, you know, some of the most difficult places. But it also gives the forces of authority a chance to then go and seal the security loophole. Uh, which um, I was expecting the authorities to react to positively. That wasn't necessarily the case. <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny you sort of say that about the authorities reacting. The book, again, unlike any sort of academic work I'm used to, aside from, I guess, kind of stuff that, you know, does have these kind of, you know, I thought these are protests and stuff like that, the book opens with you being arrested, you know, and it's, it's very much a kind of an immediately... Uh, I guess, kind of you know, a very real sense of what the risks and what the dangers are. And I've, I've got some questions about that because there seems to be the kind of the dark side of the photographic method was that the photographs became, you know, evidence quite quickly against you and equally, you know, the kind of the downside to the, you know, really brilliant kind of display through things like social media and blogging and the kind of community that got built using these kind of digital extending tools was something that the authorities could say, well, we know you've done this because it's it's here. So I I guess, could you tell me a bit, I suppose, the, the story of, maybe the story of the arrest, actually, you know, going, yeah. being on the plane, and, and take me through that. Right, so, um, 
not to spoil the end of the book, but by the end, yeah, of, no, by, by, no, by, by the end of the book, we, we um, uh, one of the goals was to access all of the abandoned stations inside the two, the abandoned, uh, which which is a very emotional moment in the book actually, uh, around kind of. I mean, yeah, in, in the script spoilers, I won't say what happens, but you are presented with this very serious dilemma about what to do around that. And, yeah, it's really interesting how you negotiate that moment. Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I was negotiating that, and as it turns out, the, the British Transport Police were also negotiating that, um, because they were, uh, they, they knew that we were gaining access to all of these stations, and they were basically following us as we explored 14 of these stations, and they were we now know, in hindsight, actually trying to head us off and, and catch us in the act, because um, the thing, we, the explorers knew that uh, there was a six-month statute of limitations on criminal trespass on the railways, and so what they were doing was going and exploring these places and then letting the photos sit for six months and then publishing them so that they couldn't be prosecuted. Um, essentially, well, we we got to all of the stations. Uh, there was no one person who saw all of the stations, which is another interesting aspect of this, that you know, urban exploration is always about the, the collective ambition and the collective accomplishment, rather than the accomplishments of individuals. Um, and that's also where the irony is in the fact that the police then took all of that information that we had, and they pinned it on the most vocal of the group, who was me, of course, yeah. you know, um, because I was out there... Obviously, you know, ethically, I had to be completely transparent about who I was, what I was doing. Um, I was writing academic articles about our work. I was blogging about it. I was very easy to find. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, uh, the the police made the decision that uh, when I I left the country in August 2013 to uh, it was 2012. It's been so long. I left the country to do a research project in Cambodia. And they decided that when my plane landed at Heathrow, they were going to arrest me on the plane. Um, basically, they arrested me to get access to my research materials, um, which opens up a whole other realm of discussion about, you know, what what sort of shielding uh, academics should have, especially when, you know, we've signed ethics agreements to protect our project participants and to anonymize data and to encrypt data and to delete data when we're done with it. And all of this was undermined by my arrest. Um, the police uh, spent eight months looking through my property, and um, they didn't find what they were looking for. They were hoping there was going to be some sort of you know, smoking gun yeah, that, yeah, would, that, would, that would show that we were involved in criminal damage or burglary or something, and there wasn't. Um, but they did end up... Exactly, that's very much not the point of urban exploration you know, at all. No, not at all. I mean, I was, you know, urban exploration is, you know, it's worth saying this very clearly. It is, it is about reverence for these places. It is about exploring these places and recording them and sharing them. It's not, um, you know, people like to make connections to graffiti, because, I mean, and there are obvious overlaps in the way that they're gaining access to, to different kinds of spaces, and there's something slightly subversive about it, but, the, you know, the point of graffiti is to do damage, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I guess, um, you know, Thank you. you can understand how people make the, 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 the connections between the two, but where the, where the, 
where the graffiti artist is leaving their tag as a sort of notice that they were there, the urban explorer is taking the photo, which is obviously yeah. much less damaging. However, the authorities tend to treat it about, in yeah. the same way, which frustratingly. I mean, that, that reverence thing is, is really interesting because it, it shines through in all of the discussions of the spaces. Um, and, you know, one of the things to comment about the book is it's a global book as well. You know, you effectively go on a kind of mini-world tour. And, uh, I mean, you might disagree, but I kind of got a sense of like, you having awe for a lot of the places, you know, particularly when you're doing you know, those moments that allow you access to the city in a way that you couldn't have access at all. It's a kind of like, and, and the photographs, you know, obviously, uh, you see some of this, but in the text as well, you get that sense of, like, like wonder that you get. Yeah, well, the, I mean, this is the thing, is that, is that trying to capture those experiences was so difficult. You know, when you when you go into uh, a, 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 a World War II bunker yeah, underneath yeah. London... Oh, the submarine, which is yeah, crazy. Yeah, this abandoned uh, Black Widow Russian submarine that we found in the middle of a river and we had, to, we had to take a dinghy out to. You know, you go into these places and, and it, it really is... It's difficult to process the idea that you're standing in a place that 99% of Londoners, Londoners will never see. They'll never have access to. Um, and then, when you're in a place like an abandoned tube station, and you sort of, you know, you look at the tiling on the walls, and you realize that this place has been closed down since 1946, and then you run your finger through the dust, and it comes away on your finger, and you think, wow, has that been building up yeah, this yeah. entire time, and I'm the first person to touch that. You know, it's... Um, it goes beyond reverence and it goes beyond documentation and that's why the photographs ultimately fail and the stories fail. I mean, it's impossible to relay the, 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 the depth of the experience. Um, and I think that's why it was so important to me that I tried to use different type of media to, to kind of get it across. And I think, you know, it was, it was effective to a degree, but, you know, the... <laughs> The critical edge of urban exploration here is that it's never about um, if if urban exploration if all it, if all it does is to create media so that people can stay at home and look at it then it's failed right what urban exploration should do at its best is inspire people to get out and engage with the city yeah. themselves and that doesn't that doesn't mean people are going to be you know sneaking into abandoned tube stations but just that you know that 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 those explorations and those stories will act as a prompt for people to get out and experience the city in, in a different way. It, it suggests a very different meaning uh, to the idea of the kind of the creative city, which has been very big in policy. And I mean, we're doing this interview sort of 15 minutes walk away from Tech City, which is a kind of uh, new media emerging tech hub. Uh, and obviously, London likes to talk about itself as being a creative city, which is usually code for new media workers who are often precarious, who are poorly paid, this kind of thing. And it's very little to do with how the city space is used. And the kind of, the idea of a creative city is very different in your book. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, the conversations that I've had with uh, with Marxist scholars, because they tend to identify with, with those aspects of my book, which I, I guess look to be somewhat anti-capitalist, and actually they're not. Because as I write in the book, you know, urban explorers are actually very much celebrating capitalism in the way that they're exploring, you know, exploring the shard, for instance, you know, and, and so that, you know, but, but they're exploiting those capital investments and they're, and they're 
turning them on their heads in a way because they're actually using the using space in a way that it was never intended to be used, and using it in a way that's totally unprofitable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I think that's actually where the frustration from authorities comes from is that urban exploration is a practice which is very difficult to appropriate and and to and to feed into the system. And it is happening now, and it, and it's um, I think not in a small part due to my work, which is kind of frustrating, yeah, you know, yeah. that there's this co-option taking place. But, you know, Mark Auger, the anthropologist, writes about this, that, you know, this, this it, it's the extreme flexibility of the global system, which is incredibly adept at appropriating, you know, any declaration of independence, yeah. which is the real threat. It's, it's not, it's not, you know, the threat doesn't come, I would argue, you know, as, as, as Marxist scholars say, I don't think that the threat comes from a direct sort of oppression. You know, it's more of a it's more from the capitalist co-option of our ideas. Yeah, and that I guess that kind of that race almost you're in uh, with the kind of uh, the authorities in the broader system, which manifests itself practically in terms of you know running away at times, yeah. uh, like physically running away, but also that sense of uh, how do we do something new and something interesting? And I think you know. The, the kind of the imaginary and the imagination come up quite a bit in the book about how do you imagine the use of spaces differently to what what they're being used for. And, uh, it but it's also about it's also about imagining a city that isn't built around economic imperatives. And again, it's not you know not to sound anti-capitalist, yeah. but but you know spaces are built and they're designed and they're constructed you know, to regulate our experiences in a particular way that's always conducive to producing profit, right? And, you know, part of what we're saying, I mean, you you could relate this to sort of the Citislow movement or something, you know, part of what what we're doing here is kind of going, let's slow down, let's pay attention, let's maybe, let's reside in some places a little longer, let's try and excavate some of the weird and deep histories that people aren't that interested in, you know, let's, let's take photos of things that, you know, people aren't, you know, Let's take photos and produce prints that people aren't going to buy, you know, because these photos are too bizarre. Yeah, um, you know, let's let's try all these things. I mean, that is that is the the, the project of creative geographies, which is happening right now. Of, you know, I mean, creative geographies, experimental geographies, geo humanities, however people want to sort of label this project. I mean, it's it's a fascinating disciplinary shift. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, 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 an, a, it's an actual paradigm shift that's taking place in geography right now. And urban exploration was just, you know, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time that it fed into geography at just the time it needed to, to start this conversation. And I think, um, you know, in the same way that there was a time and a place for that, there's now a time and a place to sort of move on to the next thing and kind of let urban exploration go. Yeah. And that, you know, that that was particularly difficult for um, my project participants, I think, to, you know, because when you do an ethnographic project and you spend years living and working with people, it is quite difficult when you say, but, you know, we've got to move on. Yeah. You know? But I think that's what, you know, being... Uh, being being honest requires, you know. and it, it's interesting that you pose uh, both kind of disciplinary questions for geography, but also questions for university. And I mean, I, I don't want to dwell on the sort of uh, the arrest and the kind of conflict with the authorities because that. I mean, I, I was around in London during the time when this got lots of media attention, uh, and you talk about the media attention in the book and it being, you know, very demanding and also very frustrating because you put up as a spokesman. And people talk about, you know, you 
just you on your own when you know right. you're kind of clear in the book that this is a community of people. Yeah. You know, it isn't just you. And on it doesn't your own. matter how many times you say that because, because you know the media isn't used to dealing with the horizontal structure. No, as, as we learn from Occupy, yeah, yeah, right? anonymous. they're incredibly frustrated. All they want is a spokesperson so they can say this is this person's yeah, view. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, they don't yeah. know how to deal with yeah, it, yeah. the decentralized structure. Yeah, yeah and. Um, and all of that, the kind of the challenge to you know you as a researcher, and then how you kind of uh, represent uh, yourself, and then kind of try and back away from being just the spokesperson, was something that was quite ambivalently dealt with by the university. And I, I was really interested in kind of part of the book where you talk about universities having agendas to be kind of public, to be open, to be dealing with social problems and social issues, and yet at the same time not really knowing how to react when someone does exactly what the universities want them to right. do. Yeah, yeah. and the, well, there's this whole narrative now around around public engagement and social impact yeah. and, yeah. you know, I get, you know, my project demonstrated all of those things yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very effectively, but they were also terrified of what was happening because they weren't, they weren't really equipped to deal with that. But I think more importantly, you know, our, our first obligation as researchers and especially as, you know, people who work with other people is, you know, our, our project participants should always be our first priority, mm. protecting them um, and, and protecting their wishes for, for anonymity, um, protecting their wishes uh, to withdraw from a project if at any point they feel uncomfortable, you know, and that was all taken from me, not just by the police, but also by the media. Yeah. Um, I, I, once the media had sort of latched onto the story... Uh, they were going to run those stories with or without me. And so the decision that I had to make was, do I try, do I get up in front of the news cameras and try and control this narrative as we're told we should be doing anyway, right? Or do I hide and sort of let them do what they will with what I've already published? Um, and I, my, my first call was not to my supervisor appropriately. It was to my project participants. Yeah. And I said, how do you feel about this? How do you think I should play this? And everyone said, look, this is what, this is what you're trained to do, right? <laughs> so, so go and do it. Um, and, and of course, when I, when I did speak to my supervisor, he, he agreed. He said, this could be a great thing for your career. It could be a great thing for the university. Let's, you know, let's cautiously work with it. So that's, that was the decision that was made. Whether it was the right decision, we'll never know. Um, I mean, there, there were certainly a lot of um, there were there were certainly negative consequences from the media engagement for me, for Royal Holloway, for my project participants. You know, everyone has suffered because of this. Um, and you know, if if I could do it all again, yes, I do things differently. On the other hand, um, you know, I was a PhD student, right? Isn't this what being a student is all about? learning how to negotiate these things. And I guess, you know, it, it was it was frustrating that Royal Holloway seems to take the view that when the project was over, their responsibility to me was over. Yeah. And they did you know, they didn't really offer me any support uh, post-PhD with dealing with any of these things. Um, and I, I would have appreciated that support. Yeah. Um, but I was also very lucky to land on my feet at Oxford. Yeah, and they've been incredibly supportive. So. I mean, to pick up on that point you said about the media, I mean, often, and again, towards the end of the book, you talk about this term, you know, selling out and kind of, you know, the potential critiques around that. But, you know, you're very explicit about how 
one of the journalists breaking the story said, we're going to run with this whether you want us to or not. And, and it is, you know, it's not one of those kind of like uh, choices you have, you know, shall I sell the story? Or so it was, this is going to happen. Yeah, deal with it. And, and, and we knew that, I mean, you know, from, from, from precedent, we know that if, if we were to just let the media run with the story, what, what they would do is take the most shocking aspects yeah. of urban exploration, you know, people climbing on top of buildings, you yeah. know, or, or, you know, terrorism angles and people yeah. being in, in vital infrastructure, and they would make that story, right? And so... What, what I wanted to do as a scholar, as a researcher, was to go in and say, look, that's not what this story is about. You know, the, here, you know these, this is the philosophy. These are the motivations. And they're multiple. There's a horizontal structure here. Um, and, and there is, you know, a theoretical and philosophical underpinning to this practice that you need to understand. And again, you know, if, if I had spent four years of my life under, you know, learning those things myself, so... Of course, I felt a, 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 um, an impetus to control that media narrative, or, or at least to you know push it in a particular direction, in a direction that was going to be that would have a bit more depth, and that would that would you know pay respect to this community that I had been working with, and make make sure that you know that all of the work that we had done together, and you know this was always very reciprocal. It was, I mean, I was learning as much from them as they were learning from oh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, making sure that all that work that we had done together and that, that kind of world that we had built was grounded in the, in the narrative in the right way. And, you know, it, that worked to a, a greater and lesser degree, kind of depending on, on yeah. <laughs> what things you read, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. The, the Daily Mail had their spin on it, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. the Guardian had another. But, um, no, it's very true. And I wonder, one of the things that um, comes out is sort of, the ambivalence of, of a lot of these experiences, so just as you know, different forms of media were kind of you know differently supportive or outright hostile, uh, and you know you talk about how even the police authorities, whilst you know having kind of you know fairly oppressive uh, dealings with you, some of them are saying that's really cool what you're doing, like, you know, and equally with you know bits of infrastructure with security guards who you know saying to you. Yeah, that sounds cool. Go on, you know. Say. And uh, I guess so I got the sense that from the book, when you dealt with individual people, there was a real kind of interest and, and sort of hunger for uh, for urban exploration and a place hacking to go on. I, I, I think that comes from it comes from the way that, that cities are are being developed now, right? I think everyone feels that kind of existential angst that's coming with you know seeing developments go up next to you that you'll never be able to afford yeah. and you know or oh, it's like get into yeah and constantly being being um you know pushed further and further from the city and feeling wages go down and so I mean all all of these kind of frustrations that are a part of you know globalism and living in, in late capitalist society, you know, those are, it's 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 not like it's only, you know, young 20-year-old men who are feeling these frustrations. Everyone feels these frustrations. But, so so when people find uh, when people find a group that sort of gives voice to those frustrations, yeah, of course, they lock onto it and they find interest in it. Um, but I guess, I think it's, you know, in order to sort of spin this so it's not just negative, it's also the fact that, that when people see a group of people who are, who are going out to do something creative and interesting and engaging with the city on, on those sorts of terms, yeah, 
people are interested in that as well. So we even, yeah, even police sometimes. We, we got caught on um, St. George's Wharf in the, in Vauxhall, the skyscraper. It was like, you know, we snuck in. We thought we were fine. We got all the way to the roof, and all of a sudden there were police, you know, surrounding the place. And we went down, and, you know, they asked us what we were doing. We said we were photographers, and then I started showing them photos on the camera. And, you know, one of the cops said, this is incredible. These, these photos are amazing. And, and then one of the other officers pulls me aside, and he says, um, there, there was a pub across the street, you know, a bunch of people sitting outside drinking or whatever, and he said, look, why can't you just go to the pub like normal people? <laughs> and I said to him, I said, do you honestly think that that's a more productive use of my time? And I was like, don't, I mean, you know, think about on, yeah. on the level of society, like, would you actually rather that I was over there drinking than taking photos, taking skyline photos of the city and putting them on the internet? And, you know, he sort of, he sort of turned red for a moment and he said, oh, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's interesting when, you know, we're, we're all subject to to forms of control constantly, and, and, and very often the most nefarious types of control, you know, in a classic sort of Foucauldian sense, is, is you know, how we regulate each other, yeah. right? And we, do, and we do it unconsciously, you know, the way we're all quiet on the tube, or the way we, we queue up, or whatever, and, you know, it, it, very often those boundaries and barriers are totally invisible until someone steps over them, yeah. and then all of a sudden, um, we all can see those barriers for what they are. And I guess, you know, yeah, this project has been quite difficult, and I mean, personally and professionally, and it's been difficult for all the way, and it's been difficult for my project participants. But through this process, we have made so many invisible barriers visible. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that has, you know, the, the social good of doing that far outweighs anything that we're experiencing. And I think that, you know, if, if, if we're going to live in you know, a, a democratic society, and if we're going to live in a place where um, where we feel like we have rights, and those rights are transparent, and we know what we can and can't do, and we know where, where our boundaries are, then it, it's always going to require people to step over those boundaries. Yeah, to discover them by stepping over them. Yeah, to make them clear. So, I mean, you alluded earlier to the sort of, I guess that urban exploration being a moment, and what struck me was, and again, from something you said, but also in the text, was the way that it might be the case that that moment has been incorporated. So if you think about uh, like Shard's viewing space that you talk about, which is it's quite expensive, it's £20 pounds or £30, pounds, 30, pounds. 30 pounds to go up and see the Shard, or a tour of Chernobyl, which, you know, guides you around the set routes, and, you know, you wear the Geiger counter and, and this kind of thing. I mean, do you, do you think the question now is what's the next creative use of a city? What's the next? That's always the question. It's always the question because it's, you know, we, we, it's really naive to think that there's going to be any sort of social movement that is going to be the answer to, to these situations, right? And it, well, we can, we can talk about the situation. It's how, you know, and, and this, their answer was always to create something new and something that's disruptive, something that's subversive. In order to do that, you have to keep moving, you know. So, urban exploration is, you know, I think, I think, um, is going through a process of co-option right now. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, I don't think, I don't think my book or the work that I did helped that process. Um, but yeah, so I know 
so British Transport Police and, and the Tube Network are now being much more open about you can go on tours into the Tube and yeah. you can see the kind of the closed spaces that you guys were having to hack in. Well, well, the mail rail that, that, you know, we rediscovered in 2010 that had been mothballed for a decade, they're now turning into a ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, and some of the some of the World War II bunkers that we had explored, uh, they had been, been empty, well, essentially since World War II, um, those are now being converted into underground farms. People are building houses. I mean, it's not a coincidence that this is happening after, yeah. you know, these spaces were, 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 were explored and shared. Because, you know, I, and I guess we, we could relate this back to the idea of place hacking, but, you know, once you make that information public and once you make that information visible, people will act on it, you know. So, you know, this is this is about accessing secret spatial information and sharing it. And once you share it, of course, it's not it's not a secret anymore. And then people are going to start protesting about the way that it's used or, or, or you know, rethinking uh, the ways in which these spaces can be used. Um, so what, what happens next for you personally, then? Have you got another book project? Uh, well, I, I guess... I think urban, urban exploration for me is sort of it's done. I mean, it's, yeah. some, it's something I'll always come back to. Um, and I guess, you know, in terms of that process of co-option, I'm not sort of mourning uh, the, what's happening to the community um, because I think it did the work it needed to do at that time. And urban exploration is, is, is fragmenting now yeah. into a, a bunch of different communities, which is great. That's what it should do, right? And it's there, there are going to be new offshoots to this practice that we can't even anticipate. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that that creative drive that the participants have, you know, is always going to cause them to manifest in different ways. So I think, you know, we can look forward to that, but the, that will be a, a project for someone else <laughs> to write about. Um, at the moment, uh, so I've got, I've got my second book coming out in September, which is basically going to be a, a, a photographic dissection of subterranean London. So I've broken up the city into five subterranean layers. Um, and I guess that book, in a way, is, it complements Explore Everything in that it's, it's, it's a bit more rich in terms of the photography, uh, or it's a bit more weighted toward, toward the photography rather than the text. Um, uh, but that will come out about the same time as the paperback to explore everything. So hopefully those, those two will sit, sit quite nicely together. Um, so in terms of my, my ethnographic research, so I'm going in a totally different direction. Um, I recently found out about a company called Blue Seed. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and they've just purchased a cruise ship. Uh, which they're going to be mooring in international waters outside of San Francisco. And basically their idea is that they're going to uh, subvert the U.S. work visa system by allowing people to come and live and work on the cruise ship in international waters and then kind of ferry people in for meetings in San Francisco, whatever. So um, they're supposed to be launching this ship in July. And I've sent them... uh, I sent them a letter. I haven't received a response yet, but I'm very much hoping that my next project will be um, living on this ship. And, wow. and and again, not just I mean, not just doing the kind of basic journalism work yeah, yeah. of figuring out who's on who's on the ship, but trying to figure out you know what are the philosophical motivations yeah, yeah. To, to try and get around. I mean, think about the geopolitical questions yeah, yeah. of kind of you know skirting around international borders and, and visa systems and what, and what kind you know. I mean, I mean, just in terms of, of uh, 
the globalization of work and, and, and uh, migration of workers across the world, you know, what kind of effects would this have if everyone kind of starts ignoring yeah. visa laws? And, and, uh, and again, I suppose there is a through line in that sense of you're showing where the state is and how the state exists by finding its boundaries and testing them. Yeah, and and also that work can be traced right back to the beginning of my career because if you think about what an archaeologist is doing, right, I mean, they're they're excavating the hidden, right? And, And what happens when you sort of, you know, go through that actual physical process of digging things up is that certain things become become visible, things that weren't necessarily visible before. And then you can start and then you can start thinking through what those things mean, you know. And so, you know, I feel like for me the uh, you know, sort of materiality of space is always the opening question. But the more interesting question is, you know, what's what's behind it all, you know, thinking about human behavior, the way that we um, uh, the way that we construct society and the way that we construct situations and how that is, you know, very often reflected in architecture, in art, in um, urban life, you know, and that's, you know, that's what I'm interested in, in digging into further. Cool. We'll keep digging. Oh, that's really great. Thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been listening to New Books in Critical Theory. Thanks very much for listening to our discussion with Dr. Bradley Garrett about Explore Avenue.